Christian Mulmer, and welcome to the latest edition of Calling All Stations. And as Mark will tell you, we've got a jammed pack edition and another exclusive. Hello, I'm Mark Walker. And yes, our programme today covers the, an update on the industrial disputes in the rail industry. We're also going to pick up where we left off in the previous episode in our discussion about the Cambridgeshire guided busway. Uh, Christian then has an extended interview with Howard Smith, who is the director of Transport for London's Elizabeth Line. And then we'll also be uh, discussing the paperback edition of one of Christian's very recent books. Well, Mark, yes, um, I have to bump in to uh, Mick Whelan uh, at a do. So uh, I did an interview with him, which has got some background noise. Um, but uh, as listeners will hear, he certainly brings us up to date in the industrial dispute. And I'm afraid um, it's pretty difficult listening. So here we go. I've just bumped into Mick Whelan, the leader of ASLEF Trade Union, and I just wanted to catch up with him to find out exactly what the state of the disputes in the rail industry are. Mick, how's it going? Well, incredibly poorly, as you can tell. Uh, with the act of bad faith by government when they new Transport Minister and the new Rail Minister came in at Christmas, said they were going to facilitate talks and make them happen. And we're actually, a deal came out of nowhere that we hadn't negotiated, we hadn't seen, which basically meant us ripping up every term and condition we had for um, a less than RPI pay rise. That went down incredibly poorly with the people I represent. That's not a surprise. <laughs> so then we have to resolve things. And then the industry came back to us and we said, oh, if you're going to offer him to work within the framework agreement we'd agreed, and in good faith, we'll come back to the table. And we put forward a solution a solution that we found something broad brush that dealt with the national dispute and all the issues that he wanted to talk about, we would sit down and take all the red lines out of them. So we put them back into the normal bargaining machineries. They attracted whatever they attracted to various companies because what we found in the previous talks is that we deal with 16 companies with some companies with three sets of trade drives, different TTCs, we could put value on anything. That was agreed. Then guess what happened? That was agreed with the ministers? That was agreed with the people we were negotiating with. Oh, right. So I don't believe they weren't reporting to the ministers and the people behind the scenes. After five meetings, we got to the end of that process. Uh, we turned up in a meeting where they then sat down and said, right, so we'll give you 4% uh, year one, which is year three for us, 4% year uh, two, which is year four for us, but all, the, all your red lines stay. And we said, we well, set this up to fail. We will pass this back to our board but don't be expecting us to accept this will be rejected. Um, with less than 12 hours later, I received a message saying the deal had been miscommunicated. And actually, in year two, or their year four, um, the red lines were part of the 4%. For something we could put a value on, all of a sudden attracted a value that was worth half a billion pounds into 4% of a less than RPI pay rise. So, uh, what were these red lines that they were trying to impose on you? We had many red lines. Some were about ill health, some were about um, competency, some were about training and payment for training. And they're all the things that are our policies that our members will not accept that we can't put out to ballot to them because they reject them immediately. They wanted you to uh, agree that uh, trainees should pay for their training on the railway. That was one of the issues. One of them also people who give a lifetime to an industry that's not a transferable skill would also lose any protections they felt ill or otherwise. 
So uh, where are we now? We, 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 we're completely stuck? This is just, there, there's no talks going on? We've had actually no contact from the management or the government. And the last time I spoke to a government minister was January the 6th of this year. January the 6th, and we're now June uh, the 23rd or something. That's correct. That's, uh, so there's absolutely very little prospect of anything being resolved. Well, absolutely, we've got a belief that they don't want to resolve this. They're making no effort to do so. And every solution, no matter how good our auspices are to make it work, they come back with some deceit, some artifice, some disingenuous and uh, this honourable way of making the talks not work. Do you think that's coming from the management of the train operators or from the ministers? I think uh, I don't think the management are doing anything without talking to the DFT and the Treasury. So I have to believe globally it's coming from the government. Well, thank you, Mick. That's a great update, if somewhat uh, depressing. But, uh, you know, I hope that uh, things do eventually get resolved. Thank you very much, Mick. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, we do. Thank you. Well, Mark, as I suggested uh, in introducing that, uh, it's pretty depressing, isn't it? It seems that, you know, I remember this time last year saying we were in for a long haul but about the industrial disputes, but I didn't think I'd be saying it a year on from now, but it does seem that uh, these disputes show no sign of being uh, uh, ended. It's become a kind of uh, rather depressing backdrop to uh, all discussion about railways in particular and transport in general that these uh, disputes are continuing of course there was a resolution of the network rail component to the dispute but in the train operating companies listening to your interview with Mick Whelan it sounds like we're as far away from a resolution as ever and I think regardless of your political standpoint it's a bit puzzling that according to Mick there's been no dialogue with the government until uh, since the 6th of January of this year on matters as important as this. I know it's quite extraordinary. And I've been saying for a long time, I've said it on this podcast, that what they needed to do was separate out the pay rises from the various productivity uh, deals. And uh, Mick Whedon seemed to have uh, actually put forward such a proposal. And it seemed from what he was saying, that there was some agreement uh, about that. And, and that's clearly the way forward. Um, and yet, uh, lo and behold, they come back, impose all these red lines, which they know are not going to be accepted. I mean, they're never going to accept, for example, that drivers have to pay for their own training because it takes, you know, 44 weeks, uh, at least for drivers to be trained. I mean, that's and an absolutely mind-boggling idea, isn't it? That a, yes. an employee should have to pay for their own training. I mean, you, it's the sort of thing where you want to stop and rewind and say, did I actually hear that correctly? Uh, absolutely, because it's not a transferable skill. You see, uh, pilots do it, and that's what the uh, I think the transport ministers might be thinking about. But but being an airline pilot, you know, if you... If you uh, fly a 737 for one company, you can fly it for another company, whereas you can't do that with uh, the driving, train driving skills because they're not transferable. You Each can't route is drive or, a French or set train. of routes is specific, isn't it? And, yes, uh, very specific. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know that that's uh, you know a pretty a pretty depressing uh, situation. One of the things I find slightly puzzling about all of this is that we're constantly hearing that the railways need to be reformed to reflect that they're 
revenues are lower than they were before the pandemic, as far as the passenger railway is concerned, even though ridership overall is back up somewhere close to or in some routes above pre-pandemic levels. But of course, strikes, industrial action, has the effect of continuing to depress the revenue of the railways. So it becomes a kind of vicious spiral, doesn't it, of decline, where you say the railway hasn't got enough money, but partly it hasn't got enough money because of the strikes. So then you try and impose more uh, draconian uh, changes to conditions on the workforce and you get more strikes and you get less revenue. Well, there's also this notion that uh, the, the railways are unsustainable and uh you know that economically they're unsustainable at the moment and they haven't really defined what that means because you know as we've discussed many times on this program you know we need the railways they're absolutely essential component of our transport system and they have to be paid for so what does unsustainable mean and you know there hasn't been any uh definition from ministers about you know, precisely, uh, you know, how much are they prepared to pay for the railways? Why is it unsustainable at the moment when it wasn't before the pandemic and so on? And uh, there's this whole vagueness, which means that nothing changes on the railway. So, you know, as we know, all the, the promises about fares reviews and investment plans and whatever never seem to get developed. We've got this whole great British railways transition team working away but we never get any results from any of this and this is all part of the paralysis on the railway i think this is a subject we'll be returning to again sadly christian Uh, absolutely our previous episode came from cambridge where uh, i'd arrived on a bus using the cambridgeshire guided busway And we had a bit of discussion about the merits of the busway and whether uh, perhaps it should have been restored, the route should have been restored to its original purpose of a a, a railway. Now, you did a bit of follow up uh, sort of public opinion research on this, Christian. I I did. I put a little poll uh, on uh, Twitter about whether people thought it was a good idea having a busway or whether they should have restored uh, the railway, and I suppose uh, a poll on Twitter with my followers, who uh, must number quite a few railway fans, is probably you know not necessarily kind of uh, that scientific. But nevertheless, I was slightly surprised that 94% of the respondents thought that uh, there ought to be a have been a railway there rather than a guided busway, uh, and only 6% thought that uh, the busway was a good idea. And I must say, you quite liked the busway, didn't you? Well, I was, I must confess, I was quite taken with it. Um, and partly because, of course, the fantastic view you get across the Fenland landscape from the upper deck of a bus. And uh, in this country, we don't have any double-decker trains, to the best of my knowledge. So, so that, was a, that was a, a, a unique kind of vista. But I also uh, reflect on the fact that if... If the decision had been to stick with a railway restoration, then we'd still be waiting. And we might be waiting for a good many more years yet, whereas the busway is in place, is offering a valued and affordable service to the public. 
And so, you know, sometimes there's a, a the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And I, I thought the busway was was rather good. OK. And it, it um, yes, it was cheaper, but it wasn't cheap. I still think it cost a couple of hundred million pounds. And oh, the actual infrastructure did. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, astonishing in a way, given what superficially the simplicity of it. I meant cheap in the fact that it was a two pound fare, which was, uh, you know, a, a, another striking feature of the experience. But uh, but I know there's a lot of love for the restoration of railways that were foolishly closed in the past. Uh, I, I share that love uh, in many cases. And uh, I know there was particular love and, and campaigning for many years to see the restoration of the railway between St Ives and Cambridge. So I, I do understand that that feeling. But it's not going to happen. Right. Very good experience, Mark. A true success story of public transport in the UK at the moment is London's Elizabeth Line. Christian has interviewed Howard Smith, who is TfL's director for the Elizabeth Line, to explore how the success has come about and what some of the trials and tribulations were on the journey to achieving that outcome. Amongst all the doom and gloom on the railways, there is one absolutely stellar success story. And that, of course, is the Elizabeth Line, formerly known as Crossrail. So I thought we should have a chat with Howard Smith, director of the Elizabeth Line, to see how it's going. Howard, welcome to Calling All Stations, and thank you for doing this recording. Um, maybe start off by saying uh, your involvement with this, because I understand you've been involved for almost a decade. Yes, I started working full-time on what was then the Crossrail project in February 2013, but actually way before that, um, right back in December 2004, when I'd been working on the Docklands Light Railway, the overground was just a, a glimmer on our in our eye, um, I went to my first Crossrail sponsor board. 2004? 2004, wow. thinking about the future, thinking about actually what the route might be at that stage, because of course one yeah. of the things with Crossrail is it had had a number of potential uh, iterations over the years. So you were with it throughout the, the construction phase. That, that's before we get into the current heavy usage of the line. Talk to me a bit about that because it was a bit patchy. So obviously um, it had its challenges. Great um, tunnelling phase. All the politicians coming down to you know proclaim how well everything was going and that this was the future. As has been well documented, you know, there were some real um, mistakes made in terms of, it's been said, setting a date, a specific date that far in advance in terms December of... December the 9th, 2018. 2018 yes. Still written on everybody's, yes, no, you know, yes, that tells you the story. Yes. Um, you know, the way that potentially some of the contracts were broken down, but really crucially missing the complexity of the integration involved in the systems and that actually the civil engineering phase, while it was a huge triumph, left a, a really, really big and complex job ahead to integrate the systems. And also, of course, what I was particularly involved in, which was actually then bringing the railway into use. So from 2018 and the really difficult days, we then had four years of doing that system integration and it was hard work. Lots of people came and said, this is actually as hard as anything they've done in railways. And then obviously the really exciting bit of 
counting down the T-minus process that we used, counting down to the Royal Opening just over a year ago, and then on to joining the railway up in November. Yes, of course, I wrote in the second edition of my book, The Crosswell Story, I did write about uh, uh, the problems and uh, this amazing complexity of uh, systems integration, not least because uh, the railway is really Britain's first properly digital railway, that everything operates by computer, isn't it? It is indeed. So, I mean, in some ways, trains even are now computers on wheels. Um, and you see that, and you see some of the challenges that causes, you know, big automotive manufacturers. So we've got some of the same dynamic in, in railways. The other thing with the Elizabeth line is when you think about it, it's probably the first time since the Channel Tunnel that we've actually brought together a huge piece of new infrastructure, but operating with new rules and operating with people, many of whom are actually new to railways, and all of whom have not worked together in the same way before. So and having to integrate hard. it with the existing railway. And that having to integrate it with the existing railway as yeah. well. So, you know, if you if you look at it from that end of the telescope, if you like, no surprise that people say, golly, this isn't easy. Well, were you disappointed that it didn't open in 2018? I mean, was that, you know, did you see that as something of a failure? Or did you see it was, did you realise it was pretty inevitable? As, as again has been well documented, you know, as the date moved, I think people began to realise inevitably it wasn't going to get there. Was it a disappointment, a huge disappointment? Yes, it was to everybody involved in the project, because you never want to, you know, be involved with something with that level of, um, you know, reset. However, on the positive side, many of the people, you know, a huge number of the people actually stayed with it and helped rebuild the programme and helped actually do this glorious sort of collaboration that brought the railway into use. The real... The real buzz, other than operating the railway, which I obviously love, the real buzz to me was actually the way, quite genuinely, that everybody came together in that period leading up to the opening and in the period through to through running. You know, we all um, recognised that one, this really was a common endeavour, um, and secondly, that actually outside, nobody was interested in the individual pieces, everybody just wanted the railway. The Elizabeth Line. Now, you were, uh, right from the start, you were responsible for operating and devising the operating uh, uh, system and, and how to uh, timetable the trains and all that. What was the, the biggest difficulty in, in, in doing that? What was, what was the biggest challenge in terms of creating an operating railway? So it was trying to judge, I would say it was trying to judge the degree of difficulty we wanted to take in terms of the sort of number of destinations and legs, you know, Thameslink, Famously, is a very complicated railway to operate. I think on the Elizabeth line, we've got something that can, you know, deliver real high performance. And then at every level, combining in a way that we hadn't done in the UK before, a genuine metro with on-network running to time, you know, to timetable. So you were trying to create, as we have done, even headways in the central section but then try and find paths out onto the west, paths through the single lines at Heath Row to Terminal 4 that actually work in a timetabled railway as well as giving a headway in the centre. And that's something that's we went, I've got quite a long history in sort of some of the international benchmarking and I was familiar with RER, with Munich S-Bahn, which is probably, you know, one of the most interesting examples of its kind. Which has lots more platforms. Which has lots with. of platforms. Yes. So everybody has some tricks. They yes. put some padding in somewhere yeah. or um, whatever. 
But to actually do that in the UK, that was the real interest, but also, again, the biggest challenge. So getting the getting the timetable, what we actually wanted to do sorted out, then we had to get a track access option, if you go back that far, and actually make sure we could use those paths before we put all the money in. And then, obviously, the really interesting bit of making it actually work as it was planned. So this is different from Thameslink in that, in that Thameslink has multiple destinations outside. You've only got uh, essentially two on two on each side, really. So did that not make it rather easier or, or was, is it because you've got very frequent trains? It makes it quite difficult. I think it's got different, you know, it's, it's a different railway is what I'd say. Um, probably not qualified truly to talk about which is most difficult, but they are different. So Thameslink is really national rail taken through a short, you know, largely tunnel. cut and cover tunnel in the centre with na conventional national rail technology. Elizabeth line, 21 kilometres of really deep tunnel with platform screen doors, ventilation systems, CBTC signalling over the central section. So, you know, in that sense, actually more technically difficult and different. But as you say, in terms of the number of destinations, yeah, less, less difficult than Thameslink. So you had to fit all these trains, and, and now we're running at, at every train every two and a half minutes, aren't we? You had to fit all those trains into the national rail network because you don't want them sitting in, in tunnels or waiting to go into the tunnels for kind of 10 minutes, which actually had to happen with a temporary timetable, didn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, there's some, again, without becoming too techie railway about it, because um, it's not really very techie, but there's some surprising sort of, you know, potential misconceptions. So, of course, in the... In the wet, in the east, rather effectively, you've really got to take one and one in terms of taking trains from each leg. You know, right. you can't just sort of say we'll run a couple more to Canary Wharf because by the time you've adjusted the trains running to Shenfield, you've created an uneven headway up there. So there's you know some of that plus, as I say, curveballs like the single line into Terminal Four freight trains on the west. So of course, on the west on the relief lines, we actually run alongside a number of freight trains each hour. And just to make the degree of difficulty higher when we went into the full timetable on 28th of May, you'll recall that Noonan Viaduct um, collapsed, had <laughs> yes. done its thing, and so therefore actually we had twice as the, much freight. The one freight. between Didcot, uh, for listeners, the one between Didcot and Oxford. And Oxford, yeah. so we actually had twice as many freight trains as expected, sort of coming down the relief lines as far as Acton and making the way around the North, you know, around the North London line. So, you know, all of this, very different uh, if you're trying to do something like, I don't know, my DLR years ago, uh, where it's entirely your own railway. Uh, now, you started this in a gradual way, didn't you? So, so I think maybe some of the potential passengers were a bit disappointed that initially uh, you could only do certain journeys, couldn't you? You ran, you ran from Heathrow through to uh, um, Abbey, Wood, Abbey Wood, I think, and then Shenfield through to Paddington, and, and those were yeah. the initial journeys. So what was the point of doing that? So. Right back to 2010, the plan had been to bring on the railway or, you know, in stages. So we took over the services either side from Shenfield into Liverpool Street yeah. into Paddington. Then we introduced the new trains, but in a sort of simplified form, actually, because they didn't have all the signalling. Then running the separate railways, so opening the tunnel, which is really difficult, but not connecting it up. And then between May and November last year, running strictly overlapping services, but also, again, because we had to put the timetable in, we actually put it in at quite short notice by railway standards. We almost had a natural pause at Westbourne Park for some trains, 
not because we actually had designed it in, but simply because that was the way of getting paths on the network at short notice. You know, we had, a, in that sense, a little bit of padding. As of 28th of May, we removed, um, if we can put it that way, the safety nets. So now, you know, virtually no pauses at the portals and trains running through from Heathrow Terminal 5 to Shenfield right through the day. So, you know, trans risk is that you transmit delay from one side to the other. But you can't run uh, in a train from Shenfield through to Reading. Can you, you can't. In, we, one, we, in we one train. Now, why is that? Timetable is actually quite hard to construct. There's quite a number of constraints about you want to get trains into Heathrow from Shenfield. You want to get trains in from Canary Wharf in particular into Heathrow. So there's some constraints on what you can run. In terms of actually running through from Shenfield to Reading, quite frankly, um, it's verging on pointless for a through passenger. A through passenger actually from Shenfield through to Reading would probably be best place to get off of Paddington. Take off of Paddington, take another train. One yes. of Greater Anglia's wonderful services in from sort of Shenfield to right, Liverpool Street right. and get on our service. Right. So it's not a sort of conscious hatred of people who would want to travel from Shenfield <laughs> to Reading, but frankly, yeah. as I say, it's not something that if we had to cut out a service, say, from Shenfield to Heathrow in order to do that, anybody would thank us for. Right. So so we're never going to be able to get the single train all the way. The, the, I, I would never the, say the train never. train spotter's to, aim there. I would yeah. say never say never, but right. not, 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 a, not a major objective, no. Because there's not a lot of people, frankly, who want no. to get from Shenfield to Reading. No. Okay. So uh, you come to opening day. Um, was that a success, May, May last year? And, you know, how, did it go smoothly? And were you satisfied with that? Yeah, well, we... we if you recall, we sort of almost had two opening days, so two yes. moments for either triumph or, or, or disaster. So the first one was when Her Majesty actually turned up on the 17th of May. That, as has been um, you know, said before, was something that we weren't certain that she was actually going to be able to attend. So it was really, really marvellous when less than an hour before the ceremony itself actually we heard that she was coming. So that, that was um, a triumph, the moment when... Um, you know, you actually receive all the VIPs and, and there is nowhere, you know, nowhere else anywhere that he's going to go is a, a you know, really exciting moment as well as one that makes the heartbeat slightly faster. And then the next week, 24th of May, obviously we opened the railway to the public and the really exciting thing there was that only then and actually during the 2012 Games, have you ever seen people wanting to take, you know, selfies with people who've got railway badges on, wanting people, you know, to sort of thank you personally, very, very sincerely for what you do. And, very, you know, we don't go into public transport as a career for sort of applause, but actually just to see exemplified in the excitement and the faces of all these people who are using it, actually what, you know, we do as an industry um, for people, you know, really, really, really important, really gratifying. So yes, that was a that was a good day. On the very first day of passenger service, we had our first sort of curveball, which was a, a fire alarm briefly at Paddington that was very well handled, but came, I think we believe to this day, from the dust, um, because the fire alarms to some extent trigger on smoke and dust, and from the number of people, you know, tramping through and throwing up dust that had lain there dormant, right, albeit cleaned from the sort of project phase. Right. And so talk me then through uh, the passenger numbers through that the first few months. Um, there were quite a lot and, and did that exceed numbers from right from the beginning? I yes. Mean, so how we, many were you getting? We obviously had a really interesting time trying to work out where we were because we had um, opening excitement, then we had uh, jubilees, 
We've had, obviously, um, funeral, coronation, a whole series of strikes, right. unfortunately, in other parts of the industry, as well as yeah. one day when we were affected. So quite hard, but basically through the first year, we were running well ahead of where we thought, and this was post-COVID, so about 20% ahead in the early months. That's continued to grow. Continued 20% ahead of what your predictions of what, were. What our predictions were. Which were quite optimistic, were, I which were, yeah. which were, beginning, you know, we, we, we thought it was going to be good and it right. was going to be attractive. And last year, um, running well ahead in terms of passenger numbers. The passenger numbers have increased. Uh, we increased the forecast, obviously, dramatically when we did uh, through running. Last week, last Thursday, um, we moved 685,000 people in a day. That's the highest yet. That's only, that's not a complete outlier. We've done 670, 675 right. on other days. So 4.1 million a, a week. Um, you know, if you think that's on a railway that wasn't even operating a, a year ago. Which is ago more than the rest of the tube it. system put together. Um, I'm not uh, too sure. No, I think you'll find if you go back, that's probably you're comparing weeks and oh, days. Okay, so right, I think you'll sorry. find probably yeah, yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. But so, it, but it's a really busy, you know, a really, really busy railway. Um, and again, it, it, it's it compares in passenger numbers terms. Um, you know, very strongly with other rail operators. Obviously, you know, they're relatively short journeys. If you compare it with a number of, you know, the length of a journey on Avanti West Coast yeah. or something, it, it's very different. But it's a really, really busy railway and a really popular railway. So what, what do you think, uh, what do you think is it, where, where are these people coming from? Okay, so are, are some of these new passengers who wouldn't use the railway otherwise, or are they transferring from the central line? What's the percentages there? So... We're still working on the percentages, and I'll give you a bit of an excuse. It's actually because of the amount of, as we've said, change and unusual you know, right. days. So people, very clever people at TFL and good people are working through that. Very broadly speaking, a chunk of them, probably up to about a third, have come off London Underground, um, and equivalent underground journeys, although that may be proved to be actually less than we thought in terms of just transferring from there. People coming off national rail services, very few, it would appear, fewer than we potentially thought um, coming from, you know, some of the other public transport modes. And then a degree, potentially, of people just using the Elizabeth line when they wouldn't have made journeys before. So that's... That's interesting. You know, transferring... And again, people are working very, very hard to get to the, the bottom of that. But it's potentially people who coming back to work an extra day a week or going out shopping in the West End who previously wouldn't have done it. Some people obviously will have travelled by car or some other mode. And then the other thing is that, you know, in transport planning, it's well understood that the people who you get on the first day are the people who by switching and doing that journey already. A year on, we're almost certainly getting into people now who've taken a job or chosen a house based on the Elizabeth line being there. So that journey wasn't just switching from something else. You know, they, they're making a different journey than they were making before. So those are those are the elements, exactly which percentage is down to which, as I say, people will be finding out and revealing over the you next You are going to work months. on that, because that would be very there's a There's a really good short term, there's some just straight stats work being done. Longer term, the um, sponsors of the Elizabeth Line, DFT and TFL, committed to doing an impact study, as was done, for instance, on the Jubilee Line. 
generally they've told a very, very good story about the value of public transport investment. So that's a two year and then a sort of three year study after that to really understand the impact. That, that might strengthen the case for Crossrail too, which we'll, we'll come to in Almost a minute. Certainly. Uh, but, um, so what about working from home? I mean, you know, you, you came on stream just as really the, the second uh, lockdown was uh, opening up, which was fortunate. Um, but uh, nevertheless, that undoubtedly has had an impact. Um, and as we were coming in, you said, look, all these people are working here. There's not that many people working from home. But is that true? I mean, is working from home still uh, having an impact? And, and in fact, you know, your numbers are more, even more impressive because there are people working from home. Yes. And I mean, it, we're not very different from other modes in London. We've seen it affect different parts of the National Railway Network in different ways. So I would say we're moving in work terms from what was a three-day week to very much a four-day week now. Mondays are demonstrably sort of becoming part of the previous Tuesday to Thursday pattern. Fridays are still an outlier in terms of people actually coming into central London to work. But... You mean that there's fewer people coming yes, on Friday? But on but in the afternoon on Friday, you'll actually see a really sort of strong leisure market of people who, having been at home, are coming out for entertainment, for Drink. travel, for weekends away, for drinks, whatever. So the week's developing a you know a different tempo to what it had before, but not you know not probably long term as you know anything much below we might hope what we you know what we expected pre-COVID. Right, that's that's very interesting, and it is it's still evolving. That with Mondays, as you say, kind of now becoming a, a normal work. Yeah, day, six, six months ago, I think yeah. we'd have said it was a three-day week. You right. know, now we're saying it's a four-day week. Who knows in six months' time what we'll be thinking? Right, and look look into the future. Do you do you see further growth here? I mean, you know, are you you know say six hundred fifty, seven hundred thousand people in a day? Is that is that what you expect or you know to, to settle down at or do you think it's actually you've still got growth? No, that'll that'll continue to grow and it'll grow partly because of this business of people actually reorientating their lives around the best public transport links. So people, as we've said, living and choosing jobs based on the ability to go on the Elizabeth Line. The other thing that if you go out east and west as you probably have on the Elizabeth Line is you'll find that there is an awful lot of housing being built. So if you look out to the east at Romford, at Ilford, if you go west to places like Southall and Hayes, some of the sites you might be familiar with, enormous amounts of housing, which London really badly needs going in. And again, that will all feed into the Elizabeth line and is, you know, stimulated at the very least by the presence of the railway. Right. OK, which brings us nicely to the last point, which is, do you think there's any prospects for... for uh, <coughs> A Crosswell too. I mean, the thing about Crosswell, or sorry, Elizabeth Line, is that, you know, and I say this to people, this is the best suburban railway in the world. There's no doubt about that. I don't think there's any anything to compare it with. It's the quality as well that, that mm. kind of attracts people, isn't it? Yes, it is. So are we going to get another one? I, I point you to history and you're, you know, it's your, it's your strong suit, if you like. If you look back at everything from the Channel Tunnel, you know, through to high-speed rail to the Channel Tunnel, um, to many of the lines in London. You'll recall the Jubilee Line as the Fleet Line when I was a child, etc. The history 
Crossrail included, is that these things eventually get built. The uncertainty is the speed with which they get built. Rarely faster, occasionally, but rarely faster than we expect. You know, generally slower. So do I think, ultimately, when people ask me, you know, what chance of Crossrail 2, I say, well, I would say, over time, a near certainty. The bit I can't tell you without dodging the question is the, you know, is the amount of time, but we hope, obviously, on the Elizabeth Line 1, um, that will have done our part towards that. And, and do you think that point about quality is, is really important? That if, if you were to build more lines, they would have to be of this sort of standard? Because, I mean, there's no doubt Crossrail could have been done a bit cheaper if, if uh, you know, if, if uh, some of the details, uh, the, the pleasant details, hadn't been kind of added. Yeah, probably two very quick observations on that. One, yes, I don't think you ever step back or very, very rarely, let's say, do you ever step back in terms of quality. You can probably look at bits of airlines and goodness knows ocean liners and things like that where people have stepped back into something more utilitarian, but generally speaking, you know, you keep the quality and you build on it and it, that makes actually everything of the previous generation look slightly, slightly old. Money, I think if the really important point is actually if we built another Elizabeth line, we would do it, you know, on a unit basis cheaper. And when oh, really? I, you think yes. the lessons have been learned? Oh, completely. Because I mean, I think you know, we know, you know, we know where some of the, we know where all the cost went, but we know how we could do things cheaper. And the sadness sometimes is that we don't continue on and learn the lessons we forget them and then build up again and the most efficient railway I've ever been involved in constructing was the DLR where we used to have an almost a pipeline of every few years we bashed out yeah the first one got built for 70 million or and, something but then got upgraded in yeah. at least during my period 4.4 <laughs> kilometer extensions costing about 150 million quid yeah. every sort of three four years and yeah. it was a pipeline and we were really good at it and if we go on and build, you know, on the Elizabeth line before we all forget where the bodies are buried, um, you know, we'll be doing ourselves a favour in the country too. Well, perfect way to end. Howard, I can't thank you enough. Uh, really utterly fascinating and I'm sure our listeners will love it. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. I think it's universally acknowledged in the transport community that, that uh, Howard Smith is a good guy. And that was a really interesting insight into the Elizabeth Line project. This is something you've studied in so much detail, Christian, and you, you wrote a book about the Crossrail project, which led to the opening of the Elizabeth Line. But what were your main observations from the discussion with Howard? Uh, well, I did. I've, I've kind of written one and a half books, actually, because I, I wrote the first edition to supposedly tie in when it was supposed to open in uh, on December the 9th, 2018, and my book came out on time, but unfortunately the line didn't. Um, but when I came to rewrite the book uh, for the second edition, the paperback edition, which came out uh, just as the line opened uh, in May 2022, um, I rewrote the last three or four uh, chapters to include the rather disastrous situation of uh, uh, overrunning both in terms of time, three and a bit years, uh, and also in terms of cost, about uh, three to four uh, billion pounds. And of course, I suppose all that is now forgotten. Uh, I mean, I, my discussion with, with Howard just showed what an amazing success it is 
Um, and in fact, it's of course, it's been renamed. And I, I should really have called the second edition of the book, which is actually called the, uh, the Crosswell story. It should have been renamed as the Elizabeth line. I hadn't realized the extent to which the Elizabeth line has become the uh, term for the railway that everybody uses. It's just accepted. It's now the Elizabeth line. And everybody's I bet lots of Londoners don't understand, in fact, that this is Crossrail. <laughs> They've probably kind of forgotten that fact that, you know, this is the Crossrail scheme. Um, and I suppose what I came away uh, from my discussion with Howard was, you know, that a high class, very uh, well used uh, public transport system like the Elizabeth Line shows that we need more of them. You know that I mean I end up I, I ended up my discussion with him saying you know what about Crosswell too and uh, you know that's being kicked into the very very long grass but you know Crosswell is transformative I mean it's on a different scale from any other uh, suburban rail network I would say even it's it's different from any in the world really I mean it's it's a world class railway uh, that uh, inevitably has proved highly successful and we ought to really understand that and who cares whether it costs 16 billion or 19 billion uh, you know there's 600 700,000 people using it daily um it, it's taking traffic off the roads um and it's uh, attracting visitors uh, people who come to london will be impressed by it you know it's just a shame that you know uh, i doubt whether we're going to see another one in our lifetimes Here's Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, I'm going to exploit my position on this podcast and uh, tell you about uh, my most recent book, The British Rail, uh, A New History, which, uh, of course, came out in hardback last year. And the paperback has just came, came out on the, uh, June the 9th, um, only £12. Uh, and, do you know, I think it comes out at an important time because... Uh, there has been a move towards recognising that all the privatisations of the 1980s under Mrs Thatcher were a bad idea, particularly uh, water privatisation has come under pressure, but so has the energy privatisations. And the book is important in that respect, in that it describes what is a successful state-run, uh, uh, state-operated and state-owned uh, organisation that uh, you know, did find it difficult in its initial years, um, but in the last decade or so of its existence, it was highly successful. Uh, it managed to fulfill both a commercial function and a social function, which is really important in relation to uh, a, a transport system, that it, it actually does both. And uh, it, it is a model that, you know, could be well used today, and certainly in terms of the railways, but also in terms of uh, the utilities uh, that were also privatised, uh, uh, well, earlier than uh, uh, the railways. So, uh, you know, I hope people read it within that context. You know, here is an example of uh, a state-run organisation that was successful, that had a relatively good relationship with uh, government in a kind of hands-off way, but was allowed to some commercial freedom while uh, having some financial discipline. 
you know, what's not to like? Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod. Pod.